Hello, this is Jeff Otis, partner at Evergreen, and you're listening to Coffee with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoy this 20-minute conversation between myself and GovCal CEO, Louis Gov. And as always, enjoy the listen. Hey, listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. Jeff Otis is an employee and partner of Evergreen GovCal. All views and opinions expressed by Jeff and any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right, I'm joined today by GovCal CEO and fellow Evergreen partner, Louis Gov. And Louis, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Good to see you, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing great. We're uh, we're now in June and ready for the sun to come out in Seattle. It's been the wettest, the wettest baseball spring I've ever been a part of. Uh, and so hopefully, as Seattle's known for f- fantastic weather here in the summertime, we're hoping to get a bit more blue sky ahead. It's been uh, it's been a nice month of January. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> So it's timely to have you on. I just was reading this morning about uh, kind of big announcements out of China that they're easing some of their COVID policy. Uh, and I think that's going to have huge implications on the market, but I want to get your thoughts on it. So maybe first off, maybe let our listeners know what what's come out and then two, kind of what's the implication of that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, in a world where lately it feels like not a lot of been going right, has been going right, right? Uh, where you're probably you know, clasping for good news anywhere, like clutching at straws, where you can find it. It does seem to me that uh, China indeed can uh, can perhaps be one of those places. Uh, after having been an area of so much bad news for uh, for for so long, now you know the the, the obvious the, the piece of news you're you're mentioning. Well, there's there's different pieces of news. The first one is you know the the Shanghai lockdowns have, have basically ended. And, you know, following an, an unusual sort of public, one could say, debate or at least airing of very different opinions between Xi Jinping on the one hand and Nikkei Zhang on the other, it seems that China may be starting to roll back at some of its zero COVID policies and sort of getting in line with, uh, with the rest of the world. Now, you could say perhaps this isn't that surprising because you have a massive calendar date uh, for China. In October, China has to do uh, its 20th party congress. Um, and that means that people from, you know, 3,600 delegates from all over China have to get together and, you know, pass me- pass debates and pass measures on lots of different things. And so that would have been very hard to do if you have, you know, parts of the country on lockdown, right? Um, or if you did, then you'd say, okay, one rule for us and one rule for them. Which you know that that only works in England with Boris Johnson's government. So um, the, the reopening over the course of the summer always seemed likely, to be honest. Uh, but now it, it 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 seems we are heading that way. So that's that that's the first point. I think that the second point, and I, you saw Didi Chuxing uh, massively jump today, uh, and a lot of the tech stocks. It it seems they're also backing off from the whole tech uh, tech crackdown, which is, has been. Huge weight on uh, on on the market, so that's that, so that's a, uh, a, a a second thing. Now, you know, as you look forward, you think, okay, there's there's other potential good news. Uh, you know, as you look forward to the party congress, historically, you know, they they typically like to crank things up going into these party congresses. So uh, you are seeing more stimulus 
um, uh, being put in, more easing on the real estate side, et cetera. So it should give at least a little bit of tailwind for at least a few months uh, into the market. But for me, the really, really big question for, for China comes comes with this party Congress, because with this party Congress, you're going to see one, I think, of one of potential two outcomes. The first is one potential outcome is you come out of it with Xi Jinping's power even more reinforced, uh, where he comes out of there, you know, sort of the ultimate uh, leader, uh, where the party is very secondary to the one-man rule, and where uh, you, therefore, the market starts to worry about a Putin-like situation, right, where all the power is with one guy, and if the guy loses his marbles, then then you get, you know, bad bad outcomes. Um, so that's one possibility. The second possibility on the party congress is that you come out of a party congress and Xi Jinping's wings have been clipped a little bit, uh, and that the the power of the party itself is, has been reinforced, and some sort of checks and balances onto Xi's power have been uh, reinforced. Um, and we'll know that if if basically it comes out and it looks like Xi is president for life, or whether they're or talking about the administration that will come out of the 21st party congress. Um, if you come out of a party congress, I think, where Xi Jinping's wings have been clipped, uh, and obviously I have no way of knowing which way it's going to go, but I'm just saying if it comes out that it looks like Xi Jinping's wings have been clipped, then I think that the market rallies really hard on this uh, because that, that will take, I would say, political risk and the biggest political risk of all, of course, being the Taiwan invasion sort of off, off the table or at least more off the table. So... So that's in the for the for the longer term. But in a world where you're sort of you know grasping for potential good news, that's uh, that's one of them. Having said that, you know, are China. Either, are, are, I was gonna say, are, are either of those solution outcomes, excuse me, uh, more likely? You know, if you'd asked me three, four months ago, I would have said that uh, it looked like Xi Jinping was riding at uh, the height of his power, etc. It seems like lately there's been you know more pushback, uh, and you've seen you know open debates and some. Press. You've seen the, the 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 you know the public fight between Li Keijiang and Xi Jinping on the on the, on the lockdowns. Um, so I, you know, look, all things when policy, it's very hard to, to know the odds. All, all you can do, as as I often like to say, as money managers, we're not paid to forecast; we're paid to adapt. Right. Um, you know, facts change. Boom, you change your portfolio and you go with. It. So I think what you want to do in these party congress is. You know, be aware of of the risks, be aware of the opportunities, and as you get confirmation one way or the other, you shift your portfolio the way you need to shift it. Um, but I think the odds are increasing that uh, Xi Jinping's wings get clipped, uh, and this for for a couple reasons. One of them, I think, there is strong pushback from from the lockdowns that have gone too far, so that's 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 one thing. But second thing, I think the Chinese Communist Party probably looks at Russia. Um, you know, if, if you want to look for silver linings to this horrible Russia-Ukraine situation, uh, perhaps the Chinese Communist Party, you know, looks at, you know, Putin and says, maybe that's not the way we want to go ourselves. Maybe having all the power in one man's hands uh, isn't the smartest thing uh, that, uh, that that we could possibly do. And so, to some extent, uh, you know, maybe the Russia-Ukraine thing has undermined Xi Jinping's own position within the party, uh, but maybe that's just me, you know, being be, you know, being wishful thinking here. the The bottom line, though, is it, you know, here's 
there's there's what we know and what 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 we what we know and what we hope. But let's leave aside what we hope and let's focus on what we know. What we know is it seems that China is reopening. It is going to reopen. It is going to stimulate before the Party Congress. And this leaves you in an environment where, you know, if you look at China's impact on the rest of the world, um, you know, one of the, the the big, you know, surprises I would say of the past year is that, in a world in which Chinese energy imports went down a lot by one or two million barrels per day for the past year, oil prices went to 120 bucks. Right? If I told you, look, you know, China's going to be on lockdown, it's going to be out of the old market, and nobody's going to be traveling in China. Maybe a year ago, you and I would have said, oh, oil is definitely, you know, going to be 60 bucks. Well, it's 120. And so, as China reopens, you know, I think the question all of us should be asking ourselves: Hold on, as China reopens, where does oil end up? That's my next question. All right. Ask yeah, it. perfect. You, you, in fact, I should just I should just let you run the interview. That's awesome. Uh, so yeah, I was going to lead you right into with China reopening. What is the implication to energy markets, and how, what should investors be paying attention to? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we are we are in an energy crisis, um, and it's an energy crisis. You know, I think the, you know the headline is always made by the oil price. You know, oil oil hits 120 bucks. But we have to acknowledge that behind that, uh, there's actually a lot more pain uh, because it's not just oil. It's natural gas going up. It's coal prices going up. Uh, it's distillates going up. Um, now, on this last point, you know, the, the, there is a real refining crisis all around the world. Uh, there's a refinery crisis in the U.S., a refinery crisis in Europe. Uh, we simply haven't built enough refineries. So diesel prices are going through the roof. Gasoline prices are going through the roof. Crack spreads have never been this high. Uh, and you look at this and you think, okay, how do these, you know, come back down? Well, we the world just needs to build more refineries. But who wants to build another refinery, uh, or for that matter, drill a new oil well, when every, you know, U.S. president, from French president, British prime minister, goes around saying, you know, in five years' time, I want all my cars to be electric cars. It's like, well, I'm not going to spend two billion dollars building a refinery that I'm going to have to multiple in in five years, or at least. I'm not going to do it until the crack the spreads are the crack spreads and the margins I make on my refineries are so big that I pay I pay for this massive investment back in three years. Right. So so yeah, all this to say that we are we have entered into an energy crisis. As China comes back on stream, I think this energy crisis gets worse. And you know, still too few people are exposed to energy uh, in their portfolios either because of ESG reasons. Uh, uh, either because energy has been such a dog for 10 years that uh, you know people have just stopped looking at it, uh, either because it's such a small part of the benchmarks that for now being underweight energy hasn't really been that painful for for most investors. But I think you know all, the, all this is bound to change over the over the coming years. So you know I know at Evergreen we've been very overweight energy. It's the same same at Gafcal. You know we've uh, I, I feel no I see no real reason today to to shift to shift that stance. Um, in fact, you know, for me, when I looked at, at the unfolding energy crisis, and, I, and you know, you always want to think, okay, how do we get out of this? You know, there's a market response to this. That the market, you know, adapts. Uh, you know, entrepreneurs adjust, etc. The more I think of it, the the only possible escape out of this, uh, and this is the the tragedy of of our policy making of recent years. The only possible escape out of this is that. Uh, you're going to see 
a lot more coal being used in all the emerging markets. Right? And it's already being announced, countries like Brazil, India, China, turning around saying, well, given the price of oil today, given the price of natural gas, uh, I'm going to go back to burning coal because producing electricity through coal remains by far the cheapest way. So as prices get too high, people go down the pollution chain, right, and 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 just pollute more. So it's it's uh, it's I guess Murphy's law, the law of unintended consequences. But for the past ten years, we've made it impossible for new natural gas to be developed and new oil to be developed all over the world. And the end result of that, you know, to so to reduce carbon emissions, to deal with climate change, and the end result of it is we're going to end up with more coal. Uh, so it's uh, which is of course far more polluting and worse for carbon emissions, worse for climate change. Um, so it'll be a case of, you know, again the law of unintended consequences at work. And but I fear I fear that's where we're heading. So I, I think this energy crisis won't end until the sky over China, the sky over India, and the sky over Brazil is back to record high levels of pollution. Well, you could be right. Yeah. And and yet, uh, do you see the U.S. production un, uh, you know, unthawing a bit? I mean, do you think that the U.S. could step up a bit in terms of its production capabilities to help out with that at all? U.S. could. The U.S. could. But here's the interesting thing on the U.S., if you, uh, if you look at it. You know, when when the U.S. was producing um, 13, two years ago or to, before COVID, the U.S. was producing, uh, let's call it 13, 13.1 million barrels per day when oil was at 55 bucks. Today, we're at $120 uh, on oil and the U.S. is producing 11.8 million barrels per day. And the reason is several fold. It's not that there's not oil in the ground. There is oil in the ground. Uh, but the bigger issue for the, for the U.S. is is that you know companies are definitely not being rewarded for doing any kind of capital spending whatsoever. You know if if you're an oil and gas company and you today announce an increase in production, you're actually going to see uh, your share price go down, not up. Uh, today, shareholders, you know, I'm a firm believer in Charlie Munger saying, "Show me the incentives, and I'll tell you the outcome." The companies, the oil companies today that buy back stocks, the oil companies that do special dividends. They're the guys who get re-rated by the market. The companies who increase production are the ones who get penalized by the market. So, you know, if you're an oil CEO, why are you going to do more of what gets your stock options higher, not more of what, uh, uh, you know, produces more? So, so that's your first, uh, your first big problem. I think your, your second big problem in the U.S., and this is true in, uh, in most markets today, it's true in China, it's true in Brazil, uh, is the problem of workforce. Um, you know, the, the bigger issue is that the, uh, you know, a lot of oil production tends to take place in areas of the U.S. that aren't that fun to live in. You know, think of western Oklahoma or west Texas or north Dakota or uh, Alaska. Um, and people will go there if they need a job. But you know, today the labor market is so tight that most people are like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't want to go spend the winter in Alaska. Thank you very much. I can, uh, I can get a job in Seattle, and uh, that's plenty fine for me." Um, so, you know, the tightness of the labor market means that, uh, you know, if you want to increase production, your your costs are going to be massive. You're going to have to, of course, pay up for the steel, pay up for the drills, pay up for the rigs, uh, and you're going to have to. You're going to have to pay up for workers. Now, when you look at the oil curve, you could say, well, you, they can still make lots of money. You know, you do this and you sell the oil forward. But when you look at the oil curve, the long-dated oil, 
is still pretty cheap. I mean, it's at like 70 bucks, 80 bucks. And so there's, you know, you're, you're taking on big costs. Once you, once you look at, into these big costs, if you're an oil company, if you sell the oil forward, you're left with not that great a profit. Uh, so you, it becomes quite a speculative proposition. You're paying up a lot of upfront costs and thinking, okay, I'm going to do this because oil is going to stay at 120 bucks. But if for whatever reason it doesn't, let's say you have another COVID lockdowns, because let's face it, if you run a very cyclical business, like an oil producer, your policy risk have increased dramatically in recent years, right? If, you know, you, you've got things that you never thought would happen, like your own, your own policymakers deciding to completely shut down your economy. And so you think, okay, well, I, that's a new risk I didn't think about before, but that risk is now definitely there. Maybe I get shut down again and then oil goes negative again. So, you know, for all these reasons, uh, you're stuck at 11.8 million barrels per day and it's hard right. to see. How so bottom line is you have, you have surge, and this is like econ 101. I remember my freshman year, but it's surging uh, demand ahead, especially with with China coming out of lockdown, and there hasn't been the, the appropriate response from the supply side. So supply demand, you have higher demand without the same supply. So you're expecting higher prices ahead, which is why you're recommending that investors maintain some exposure to energy with their portfolios. Absolutely, absolutely, and. And I would say, it's, you know, not that there isn't any, uh, there isn't a risk. You're already seeing it in Britain. You know, in, in Britain, they've just announced a, a special windfall tax on energy producers, right? It's like, oh, you guys are making so much money. We're going to, you know, come and tax your money, uh, take it away from you. And, you know, the big risk is you're going to see, uh, you know, you, you know, what are the odds that for this coming Democratic uh, uh, election in the U.S., the Democratic Party's platform becomes let's let's tax oil companies to fund to to fund um, student loan forgiveness. You know that's going to be popular, and so you know that's and if you're an oil executive again, you're like, well, hold on, why am I going to increase production so that whatever profits I made, I'm going to make pay extra taxes on? No, no, thank you. So yes, for all these reasons, you have no increase in supply and. Yeah. Uh, so the, my, my fear is all prices will continue to rise until they end up breaking the back of the economy. Well, let's talk about markets. Uh, we'll move on from energy and see how that all plays out. But uh, I know you, you have a good pulse on it and follow it very closely. In terms of this market itself, we've had a, a rebound certainly off the recent lows. Uh, what's your take on it? I mean, would you? How would you describe the you know this relief rally that we've experienced maybe over the last week or two or three? And how you know what is it? What is it as a signal to investors? Well, look, uh, I was actually having this conversation with uh, with David, uh, David Hay, your, your CIO, not uh, not so long ago. And, um, you know, the some of the strongest rallies are always amidst bear markets. Right. And, you know, bear market rallies can be can be pretty vicious. So, you know, the, the first question is to ask yourself is, are we in a bear market? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. And and this is quite an unusual bear market in that you have a bear market in equities and you have a bear market on bonds at, at the same time. And that makes it all the more vicious for, for, for most investors uh, because, you, you you know, most people have had nowhere to hide. The only place to hide has been energy. Now, you know, in my career, I've, you know, I've experienced my share of bear markets, not as many as Dave because he's got 20 years on me, but uh, maybe not 20 years. I'm exaggerating. He's got 15 years on me. But, uh, you know, most bear markets, all the bear markets I've known have ended 
through one of four things. Uh, you need one of four things to call the end of a bear market once they get started, because they tend to feed on themselves. The, the first thing that can happen is the Fed starts to ease and add liquidity into the system. And you know that, that usually helps form a bottom. Today, we're, we're nowhere near that. You know, this might be a story for 2023, but uh, the Fed, in fact, is just starting right now quantitative tightening. You know, like, you know, just one, over a year into a massive inflation surge, it's finally stopping to add, to add liquidity into the system. So, so that's your first condition. It's not being met. Your second condition is oil prices tank. Uh, because you know, when oil prices go down, that frees up liquidity for a lot of businesses frees up liquidity for the consumer, it leads to a rise in disposable income. Today, that's not being met at all. Quite the contrary. Oil, energy, the energy complex continues to drain liquidity from the system. So, so no, no respite there. Your third condition is maybe the U.S. dollar collapses. And when it collapses, it gives an opportunity to other central banks to, to start easing and easing massively. So, you know, that's, that's perhaps one possibility. And we're not there yet, but that could be a story for 2023. Uh, again, and the fourth possibility is that assets get so cheap, you know, so so just given away in the street that um, you know when that happens, you just have to buy. You don't know why, but it's just so cheap that you're like, okay, I just, you know, things things can't be so bad. But nothing is that cheap yet. Uh, and you can find some assets here and there, like U.S. home builders are pretty cheap and. Uh, I still think energy is cheap, et cetera. You can find pockets and U.S. small caps have derated a lot. So you can find, you know, sort of pockets here and there. Uh, I think China and China tech is very cheap. So you can find pockets in there. But overall, the markets themselves are can't be described as, as just massively cheap. So, so yeah, I, unfortunately, I think we're in a bear market and you need to be prudent with your capital. Uh, in a bear market, you want to redeploy capital when things are very oversold, when, uh, you know, when Assets reach valuation that you you think okay you know what I'm just happy owning this for 10 years and because over 10 years I'll make my money back and that's you know that's that's a very different approach to to investing uh, you know I I like to say that there's three ways you make money in the markets you you run a momentum strategy or you run a, re, a return to the mean strategy or you run a carry trade strategy uh, in the bull markets momentum works great carry trade works great uh, today we're we're back to the the times of the return to the mean investor. Uh, so you you buy things when they're oversold, and you buy things when they're cheap. And you know, in fairness, I think we've you know we've been doing this for the you know David David Evergreen's been doing this forever. But um, sounds like the Evergreen playbook is what I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you've been doing this forever, and you know you guys are having a pretty decent year relative to to most. We're having a pretty decent year relative to most, and so the, the, this kind of environment isn't isn't fortunate like. At least in relative terms, but even in absolute terms, it's not a very bad one for us. Right. But takeaway for investors is might be time to be a bit more active, whether you're doing it on your own or having somebody obviously do it for you, uh, trimming, trimming into rallies and then deploying, like you said, capital during during panics. So, yeah, and we haven't seen total capitulation yet, but we have seen moments where the fear index is just hitting, hitting near its high. And there's been a lot of concern from a lot of people as I've been talking to them. So. But it's always good to really get. It's great to get your insights. Maybe a final kind of bonus question. Any update, uh, you know, meaningful update that you'd want to share on the situation in Ukraine? It's a tough. It's a it's a tough one, right? Because, you know, obviously you're dependent on on media reports. Um, 
and you know there's the fog of war the the propaganda it's it's always hard to determine what's real from what's not right now it, it does seem that uh you know russia is is getting the upper hand uh that after a poor start uh they they seem to be consolidating wins and to some extent perhaps this gives us the uh, the sort of light towards some 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 potential final outcome where you know Russia consolidates let's say you know the sort of 20% uh, of Ukraine it owns it, it's it's owns it's uh, it's taken over in the in the east and along the seaboard it consolidates that and and then you have you know some kind of north korea south korea divide line where you know no peace treaty is signed uh and you know Russia sort of remains a, par- a pariah state where you have sort of an iron curtain with Russia and Belarus on one side and and the western world on the other and you know it's uh, Russia be- remains this pariah but one that is still able to trade with pretty much every major emerging market out there the Chinas the Indias the Saudi Arabias the uh the brazils etc continue to trade with russia today uh and in this world i think russia more or less becomes a colony of china and by that i mean that you know most of the russian commodities end up being bought by china for renminbi and then the only thing russia can do with this money is buy chinese made goods and so you know if you're russian all of a sudden you can't buy a mercedes or a bmw anymore you have to buy a chery automotive or a byd which you might not be that stoked about but you know it's still a car i guess uh and and so russia becomes a sort of you know completely economic dependency uh of china's it's great news for china it's terrible news for europe um it's of course very sad for ukraine but i i think to me this seems to be the path of least resistance at this point yeah, well, the the main message I've been passing along is, in, and obviously you chat with Dave all the time, uh, is just to investors and the clients we work with is just buckle up a little bit, right? As the as the uh, captain uh, comes over the loudspeaker on the airplane and says, hey, you know, we're expecting t- continued turbulence ahead, right? And so, uh, and yet we're we're watching it closely, and it's really good to have your team involved, and especially uh, having you on and sharing your insights. So I appreciate your time. Of course, Jeff. Anytime. Always good to see you. Okay, we'll talk. I got to one question before we leave. Yes, what's the question? Go ahead. With all this, with all this weather, how's your wine going to be? I think fantastic. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the what wines, uh, the wines that we're producing right now are going to be some of the best we've ever made. So we're really excited about the, the 2021s that are already in barrel, and then the 2022s that are coming. So I think it could Do be. Put my order. Put my order in for the 22s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly. Louis is referring to family winery that that we own here in Washington, and and uh, grow our grapes over in Eastern Washington, and we got a really good team and and fantastic winemakers. So okay, all right, yeah. I'll put in my order. <laughs> this right. this. Thanks Sounds a bunch, Jeff. Thanks, Louis. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.